The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for August 27, 2022. The former Attorney General of Mexico was recently arrested in connection with the 2014 disappearance of 43 students in the country, which a government commission recently called a crime of the state, involving individuals throughout the government. 80 arrest warrants have been issued related to these disappearances amid the country's long struggle with violent organized crime and pervasive government corruption. Given these developments, I picked an episode from the Lawfare Archive from October 8, 2016, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Stephanie Leuter to discuss violence in Mexico and Central America and how violent conflict within the U.S.'s southern neighbor relates to U.S. national security. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 8th. 2016. That was Stephanie Leutert, the Mexico Security Initiative Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, and the author of Lawfare's Beyond the Border series, where she provides a closer look at security issues in Mexico and Central America. Stephanie joined Benjamin Wittes this week to talk about the epidemic of violence currently plaguing Mexico and its southern neighbors. The violence is brutal and extreme, Yet those of us in the United States who write and think about national security issues rarely consider the crisis immediately to the South as one that's relevant to national security. Why is that? What's causing the crisis in the first place? And what, if anything, can be done to stop it? It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 191, Stephanie Leutert on violence in Mexico and Central America. So let's start with the Mexico Security Initiative uh, which uh, readers of Lawfare will have seen uh, associated with your column. But what is it and what are you doing with it? What, what's your role in it? Sure. And first, thanks, Ben, for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's great to talk to you, as always. So, Good to have you. Thanks. Uh, so the Mexico Security Initiative is a new program out of the Strauss Center at UT Austin. And it was created to fill the void uh, that we were seeing in terms of policy-relevant research uh, for Mexico, for the Mexican government, and also for the U.S. government related to the security challenges. And it has a few components. Uh, So the main one is a year-long class at the LBJ School here at UT. And we also have a speaker series where we're bringing in practitioners and scholars who are working on these issues. 
and a spring conference that we're in the process of planning in Mexico City, and of course the uh, the column beyond the border with lawfare. So when you describe a, a void in scholarship. Um, you know, I think most lawfare readers are aware that there's a lot of violence in particularly northern Mexico, um, though it has certainly spread beyond the north. But how would you describe the void of scholarship uh, with respect to that constellation of, of violence and security threats relative to, say, other ones? Like, what's the void that you guys are trying to fill? Yeah, so first I'll, I'll tell you why I think the void exists and then the void that we're trying to fill. There certainly is a void in the kind of U.S. national security establishment when it comes to hard security questions in Mexico, or really in Latin America generally, um, but we're focusing on Mexico. And it's not really clear why, uh, given that this is our neighbor, it's a country we share a 2,000-mile border with, uh, it's our second largest export market, so we really should be concerned about stability. So kind of why this isn't headlining uh, a lot of our national security conversations, or at least making it onto the top 10 priorities, uh, is certainly a question. And I think there's a few reasons for it. You know, I think, first of all, we rely a lot on these kind of stale paradigms of, of what this violence actually is or where it comes from. And we've all seen narcos, or a lot of us have seen narcos. And so we're thinking of these kind of Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar, groups that are out there in Mexico moving drugs. The kind of El Chapo is reinforcing the stereotype of the big kingpin in charge of a, a big organization. But a lot of times that's no longer the reality. So that's number one. Number two, we're less interested in, in violent groups when they're not kind of espousing some extremist ideology, when they're not trying to take down the United States or they don't have extreme political objectives. These are fundamentally profit-motivated organizations, and so they don't, see, they don't seem to capture our imagination in the same way as other groups that are ideologically oriented. Let's talk about the nature and scope of the violence, um, both in, in Mexico and in Central America more generally, uh, you know, which is pretty extreme relative to a lot of conflicts that uh, the national security community spends a lot of time on. So what's what's the scope of this thing? How bad is it? And, you know, how does it stack up against, uh, you know, say, Islamist terrorism in, uh, in, in Europe and the Middle East? So to preface kind of this whole conversation before we get to how bad is it, and it is pretty bad, I think it's worth taking a step back and reminding everyone that, you know, as we talk about these really bad uh, security challenges, Mexico is also, you know, the world's 15th largest economy and attracts, you know, almost $30 billion a year in foreign investment and is a world-class producer of engineers and scholars and companies, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with that said, because uh, often these conversations quickly go into, is Mexico a failed state, which it's not, you know, but with that said, along the margins or you know, in these remote areas or in states that are far away from Mexico City, you have an enormous security crisis. The data is, is hard, to, hard to come by, but it seems that since 2005, there are at least 150,000 Mexicans who have been murdered. And that's, that's an astonishing number. So, uh, like, that's according to whom and what? So this is according to the Mexican kind of government's own data. 
And this includes all murders. So you have to take that with a grain of salt of how many of those are cartel murders versus how many of them are kind of your regular, I guess, run-of-the-mill murders, if, if we can say that. But on top of that, it's also worth mentioning there are at least another 25 to 30,000 disappeared Mexicans that we know about. So this is a total of 180,000 Mexicans since 2005 who are either have been murdered or who have, are disappeared. And there are likely many more whose families just never reported them as missing because uh, there are often mass graves that they find in Veracruz or in Morelos or in Michoacán or in Guerrero holding 40 bodies, and then those get counted into the that year's homicide data. So this is a, a really, you know, perhaps 180,000, perhaps even higher, closer to 200,000 Mexicans being murdered over the past, you know, 10, 11 years. And what's the baseline against which to measure that? I mean, what it, do, do we have a sense of, I assume that's a, a, a sharp escalation uh, over previous uh, years, but what would the normal 10-year period of, of body count look like? Certainly not that high, and it's hard to now know what a normal year would look like. There were much lower rates uh, in the years from, say, 2000 to 2005. And then when Calderon came in, President Calderon, and he declared a, a very aggressive strategy against the cartels, and you saw these numbers of homicides that were increasing very quickly. Now, in 2012, when the current president came in, he came in on a platform that he was going to reduce the number of homicides, the number of, of murders happening in Mexico. And you did see in 2012, 2013, 2014, these decreasing numbers slowly. And they kind of flattened out, and we thought that that was perhaps, you know, they weren't as low as before, but we thought that was perhaps the new norm. Now, since January of this year, we have 14,000 Mexicans who have been killed. So that's an increase in the violence. That's 18% more than last year, and that's 24% more than 2014. So we're on the upswing again. So it's hard to know if this, you know, this level of, uh, say, around 2,000 Mexicans being killed a month or a little less than that is the new norm, uh, or if it'll ever go back to being closer to perhaps 1,000 for a country of 100 and 13 million people, 1,000 Mexicans being murdered a month. Maybe that, um, but that would be roughly half of, of the rate we're seeing right now. So it's really hard to tell. And what about in the other countries that you look at? Is I, I, I mean, I think some of them have rates of uh, homicide that's even higher than Mexico. It is. So I'll give you a few uh, numbers to help put it into perspective. These are, you know, for Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, these countries are much smaller. Guatemala is a country of 15 million uh, Honduras is a country of 8 million, El Salvador is from 6 million. Um, but when you look at it per rates of 100,000 people and how many are murdered per 100,000, in the United States, it's 5. In Mexico, it's 13. In Guatemala, it's 30. In Honduras, it's 57. In El Salvador, it's 103. Talking about the most dangerous countries in the region and in the world, that's you're looking at Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador always making it into the top five. So these are, you know, just astonishing levels of violence. And as you said at the beginning, uh, they kind of escapes the notice of the national security community. Uh, I mean, people are generically aware that there's cartel violence and, you know, periodically large numbers of people fleeing it end up as migrants. And we, you know, talk about 
you know, whether we should build a wall or what we should do about the migrant uh, crisis. But the sense of this as a sort of major set of conflicts that are right on our border uh, doesn't really enter into the U.S. national security conversation in any sustained or serious way. You've given some reasons for for that. Um, I, I'm interested in in the case for the idea that we should think of this a in national security terms uh, and b as sort of like a major conflict that you know is worth more attention than we give it, given the proximity to us. I mean, are we understudying this, underthinking it, under underreporting it? Absolutely, and I think the problem is because it's so close to the United States. I think that's actually one of the reasons why we have a hard time focusing and understanding uh, these issues. Why? Because so much of this touches our most sensitive policy nerves in terms of domestic policy. We see migrants arriving at our southern border, and we think illegal immigration. We don't think anywhere near the same terms as Syrians, you know, fleeing uh, violence in, you know, fleeing violence and arriving in Europe. They're refugees, and when you have Central Americans fleeing and arriving at the southern border, they're undocumented illegal immigrants and they need to get out. Or, you know, it's also touching border security, kind of a a big hot-button national security issue. So these are often our most challenging, our most sensitive domestic issues, and because Central Americans and Mexicans and and the issues in these countries are so deeply intertwined with our own kind of sensibilities, I guess, it's hard for us to often separate it out. It's not as easy as looking into a faraway country and, you know, making these judgments when your own opinions and perspectives are so wrapped up in it. In one of your pieces, you sort of broke down the list of the list of actors like who's who's producing these body counts. And um your basic argument is it's a lot of different actors. It's not, you know, it's not like sort of ISIS v, you know, uh, you know, the Syrian government or, but there's, you know, th- these are, these are many different levels of, of, of actors involved in this. And it's fundamentally different in character from, you know, what we think of as, uh, you know, the, the sort of narco violence from, from, the late 80s and early 90s. So break this down for us. Who is killing people in Mexico and Central America? And what are the different groups that are responsible for the violence? So I think I ended that piece by saying everyone is killing everyone. Um, so I'll start <laughs> with that premise. Uh, in Mexico, you have you have a lot of uh, different organized criminal groups. Um, you have the big kind of traditional cartels. You have the Sinaloa cartel. Um, that was the one that El Chapo is the head of. And they tend to be overall, or they used to be kind of less violence for violence sake, although that certainly has changed. Um, and then you have other groups that are kind of upstarts, like the um, Cartel Jalisco kind of new generation. Um, and they're expanding really uh, rapidly across Mexico. So what what makes like like are they different in character or are they just you know Kali to Sinaloa's Medellin cartel? I mean, are these basically the same sort of entities, or 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 is there something different about the younger generation of cartels? 
When kind of 2005 or when you had the Zetas really coming up, they changed the entire structure in that they really embraced the use of violence and they glorified it and they took videos and they put it online. And this was a game changer in the sense of other cartels began doing the same types of activities. So you do have this kind of divide of people looking at the old cartels of the Sinaloa, which were not as violent, um, or they were, but there was more, it was less of violent for violence sake. And the new generation of the Zetas, of the, the Cartel Jalisco new generation, who are really hyper-violent, and they're not really trying in a lot of ways to make any inroads with the, the communities where they're operating. Um, they're more extorting or kind of taking part in other very damaging activities. I wrote in another piece about how the Cartel Jalisco new generation, um, it's expanding very quickly, and this is kind of a case of the Zetas were, were playing this role only a few years ago. Um, but as these, you know, one criminal group expands very quickly, it of course encroaches on the territory of other groups, um, causing uh, a lot of violence kind of along those fault lines as these groups fight over territory, over very lucrative um, trafficking territory or ports or highways. And so you see that and then you see the, the Mexican policy and the U.S. policy of kind of going after the top leaders of these different groups. And as you kind of slice off a few of the, the heads, you often get, if it's not in a very hierarchical organization with a long kind of chain of, of command that has already been outlined, you get a lot of infighting. And these ruptures within groups and creating the, the splintering of groups really creates a lot of um, uncertainty, a lot of bloodshed between former colleagues, um, and everyone's kind of trying to maneuver to get their own piece of, of the territory. Um, so you have all of this going on at the cartel level, and of course all these groups are fighting also with the police and with the military uh, to continue to be able to engage in these activities. Now that's just kind of on the, the macro level of the largest groups. Within a lot of these communities, there's also smaller um, kind of street gangs or smaller level crime. So what is, I want to stop you there because I've sort of wondered this in some of your pieces. What is the difference between an international gang like the types that you've described and a cartel? Often the line is very murky. A lot of times you see these small uh, criminal groups that are operating in a city and you'll have a group like the Zetas come in and they'll basically say you're either working for us or you are you're all dead the plato or you know a plomo kind of thing um, so you end up having these these small groups of kind of your local criminals and they're backed by these you know big international cartels or organized criminal groups and to be a, a big transnational organization that's moving drugs or other kind of illicit goods or moving people you have to have a very large international network of contacts to be able to have suppliers in Colombia, for example, um, to have groups working on your behalf in Guatemala, um, to move this all, and then in the U.S. to distribute. Um, and a lot of these local gangs don't have that, but they might have the backing or, you know, kind of the, they're a part of franchise, per se, of these larger groups. Um, so it can be difficult to know, you know, who's actually a Zeta, who's actually, you know, has the contacts that go all the way up to the top, and who are these, you know, smaller groups that may have their name, but are really operating, you know, under their own command, um, just with the kind of implicit backing and name of the larger group. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And when you describe these gangs, um, some of them you describe as very local, um, you know, uh, controlling a few blocks of territory in a in a given city, and some of them you describe as fascinatingly having their origins in U.S. cities and sort of exported back to El Salvador and and elsewhere. So walk us through how these gangs, in contrast to the cartels, are actually a U.S. urban phenomenon. Absolutely. It is a, an interesting story of how a lot of times Central American El Salvadoran migrants, they fled the civil wars in their countries back in the 80s or you know, early 90s. You had a lot of these El Salvadoran migrants living often as poor undocumented migrants in the U.S. Uh, and they were vulnerable to gang recruitment or to gang violence living in many of the same neighborhoods where there were kind of long-established you know, L.A. gangs, that being the city where a lot of El Salvadorans were living. Um, and which had a large gang presence at this time. So you saw these groups kind of forming their own mini gangs to protect themselves or, or you know, to kind of fit in. And over time, a lot of these gang members, you know, changing policies, getting tough on gangs, um, they actually ended up going to jail and learning kind of from all of the most established gangs of that time, specifically the Mexican mafia. These gangs, particularly the Mara Salvatrucha, the MS-13 gang, um, were then, um, as immigration policies changed and kind of got very tough on uh, non-citizens who had committed violent crimes, the, that kind of policy push took a lot of these people out of the jails, a lot of these El Salvadoran migrants who had now not only formed their own gangs but had become even more violent or more established through these ties with larger gangs, it exported them all back to El Salvador. This happened around the same time that El Salvador was coming out of its civil war. It was a fertile place for these gang members who were violent, who had weapons. There was not a strong state presence. There were a lot of very traumatized individuals who you know, had just experienced the civil war and had histories with violence. And it was the perfect ground for a lot of these gang members to really set up their operations, which have been steadily growing ever since. And now you have, you know, you have small local, I mean, the gangs are transnational at this point, and they are really controlling a lot of, of neighborhoods, but how does it break down? It's also, in, it's called cliques, which is kind of groups of these uh, gang members, and they might control a city or a town, a small town, um, but they're all being controlled at the top by the top gang members. Um, so it's a more diffuse network, but they're operating, and they all have their kind of local identities and local members, and but they're operating under this large kind of transnational criminal umbrella. Okay, so you've got the traditional cartels, you've got the new generation ultra-violent cartel types, you've got 
highly local street gangs r reflecting franchises from from other organizations, and you have the originally U.S.-based, uh, particularly in El Salvador, um, uh, street gangs that have been exported or deported back to El Salvador. What else? What What are the other major sources of, of, of killing? You have the police and the military themselves. These are bodies that are know, in, in Mexico and in Central America that are, you know, authorized to fight against all these groups, but then are accused of committing their own, uh, as one report put it, crimes against humanity. And each kind of force is a little different. I'd say Mexico's police and military are pretty professionalized, but they still are blamed for uh, pretty egregious violations of, uh, of human rights, of killing, you know, 22 or up to 40 um, cartel members. Uh, many of whom apparently tried to surrender. That was a recent case. Or in, in El Salvador, where you kind of repeatedly hear cases of the kind of shoot before asking questions, or over 100 gang members have been killed, not arrested, killed by police in the, in the last few years. So this, or I'm sorry, the last year. So this type of constant confrontation between these criminal groups and the police and the military, even perhaps many much of it justified, is also another source for a lot of um, a lot of uh, human rights violations, or for a lot of the the violence in general, and it also creates kind of deep divides between these communities and the state, uh, which makes reporting crime more difficult, which makes you know stopping these groups at all more difficult. So it's kind of a, a vicious circle that that continues. So I want to return to the question of how bad it is. So you hear you hear different things about these different countries, and sometimes different things about the same country. I mean, you know, often hear people say sort of Mexico's turning into a failed state uh, or, uh, you know, particularly about Honduras, you know, that, that, you know, these, some of the Central American countries are really approaching governance failure. On the other hand, I've heard lots of people say Mexico is a, you know, quite effective state in most ways. It's an effective state with a violence problem. And so I'm, I'm interested in your sense of how how we should assess these states relative to other states in the world that have you know large numbers of murders or killings or or, or non-state actor violence. It's it's a hard question to answer because in a lot of ways it's all of the above. Um, Mexico is a world-class economy. It's it has a amazing aerospace sector, world-class aerospace sector. It has an unbelievable automotive industry. It has all of these incredible world-class industries. Um, if you go to Mexico City and you walk around, it's, it's cosmopolitan. It's, uh, it's an amazing place. It feels safe. There's, there's boutiques, there's cafes, there's people walking their dogs. But if you went up to Tamaulipas or if you went to a small town in Veracruz or in Michoacan, uh, these kind of more remote states, you would probably get a lot of opposite answers that uh, that these areas have been overlooked by the government, that there isn't much employment, um, that there's been brutal, kind of grotesque killings on, on a regular basis. So you have a, a Mexico, a kind of a state structure that's incredibly sturdy, and these pockets where you have unbelievable violence going on. And what about, what about the Central American states? I mean, it, it is, should we think about you know, Honduras and El Salvador as, you know, states that are, you know, 
on on uh, on the verge of of failure or or in threatened with sort of basic governance failure or do they have more staying power and resilience than that i don't think that these are states that are going to be failing anytime soon but i would say i think the i mean they're much smaller in in size and so if you have a few towns in in mexico or a handful or quite a few towns in in mexico that are extremely violent or uh, where it's extremely unsafe you also have large swaths of the country that are fine when you have that same thing in a country like el salvador which is very small that really is the entire country i think it's um I think I'm safe in saying that the situation in Honduras and El Salvador on a kind of larger scale is much worse. You really do have um, kind of an emptying out of the region. You have thousands, tens of thousands of Central Americans who are fleeing of El Salvadorans. It's a country of six million. And you have you know, tens of thousands of people who are fleeing every month or more because that's only the people who are making it to the United States. It's, you know, they're fleeing a lot of different things. Um, they're fleeing the gangs. Uh, incredible kind of gang violence, extortion. Someone shows up and slips a note, you know, under your front door. says to pay this person in, at this time, and if you don't, they're going to kill you. And you know that's what happened to your neighbor down the street, and so you're terrified. So you pay, and then you can't make that last payment, and you're worried they're actually going to kill you. Um, so you flee, or they were harassing your daughter. So you have this as well, but I'll also say I spent time working with a lot of these Central Americans who had made it to the United States, and there are other epidemics going on as well that are often tied to the gangs, but of domestic violence. Um, and it's kind of this breakdown of the social fabric that's, that's occurring right now through El Salvador and Honduras um, and parts of Guatemala that I think is, is going to become, it is a dire challenge already, and it's going to continue to become uh, an even worse one. So you have, uh, as have others, but you've really insisted that the violence in these countries it is is what's driving this massive migration uh, including of kids to the United States now this um, th- this migration was big news a few years ago and it's largely out of the news now to what extent is it continued and to what extent and and people just don't care anymore and to what extent has has it really been curtailed? It's still continuing. <laughs> I think uh, you know one of the reasons why it's out of the news is because we've just gotten better at absorbing these these numbers of people. You know, just last month, just families. There were about nine thousand families who showed up at the border from Central America. But we now have a much better system for processing them, and we have family detention centers that are already established. So it's it's not as much of a breaking news story. And when you when you say absorbing and processing, so what is happening to you know of, of the. X number of tens of thousands of people. I mean, how many people have come over this whole wave and what's tended to happen to them? Um, I'm not sure of the exact number of people who have come, but you're looking at, you know, upwards of, I think it's, you know, over 100,000 people easily um, who have, you know, crossed the border. When they, so there's different pathways of what happens to you, you know, when you make it here. And I also want to go back that not all of these people are fleeing violence. There are some who are coming for economic opportunity, and there are some who are coming to reunite with family members who are living here. Um, but I do think that, and I, statistics back it up, that or survey statistics, that a large a majority are fleeing violence of some, of some form. 
Now, when they come to the United States, there's three pathways. There's, there's unaccompanied children, which is the one that made the, the most news. And those numbers have actually stayed stable. Around 5,000 unaccompanied children have been arriving over the past um, like about two years from Central America every month. <laughs> And then you also have the families that come, and then you also have um, just adults. And each of those three categories is processed a little differently, uh, with the children going into a kind of more the Department of Health and, and Human Services, um, and they're processed on a very kind of different timeline. There are families, which many of them go to family detention center, and they have an entire process of, of how to leave those centers. Um, and then there's the uh, adults, which are again on a, a entirely different pathway, and they're the least likely to have the chance to stay in the United States. So in, in your perception in the aggregate, are most people getting sent back or are we absorbing I don't want to, you know, make Donald Trump reach for the smelling salts, but, are, you know, are we absorbing a large number of people or is this largely a processing in terms of, you know, an orderly system for sending people back? We, it is an orderly system uh, for sending people back, and that was really the initial intent of the Obama administration's response, or kind of first response to the Central American migrants was, how can we process them quickly to send them back quickly um, so that more realize they cannot stay? Now, each of those three groups that I mentioned, unaccompanied children, family detention, uh, just plain adults, each of them I'd say it's probably a little different statistics. If you're an unaccompanied child, your uh, chances of staying in the United States are much higher than if you are a 20-year-old uh, male from El Salvador, just based on um, asylum law protections that we offer to children here in the United States. And similarly for parents with children, it's, it is easier to, to stay. Although with that said, these types of asylum cases are often quite difficult to win because gangs usually aren't the, you know, asylum law wasn't written for individuals fleeing gangs, so it's often difficult to prove that type of persecution um, back in their home country. You mean because the, the, the gangs aren't fundamentally political in exactly. character? Exactly. Um, and because these countries are taking efforts in a lot of places to try to stop the gangs. So there isn't, they're not fleeing the state per se. It's, you know, to kind of go back though, you do have a lot of people who are entering the country right now on asylum proceedings, and those are long, and often they're shelved over kind of administrative reasons after, especially for children after they've reached uh, a certain length of time. But it also depends where in the country these individuals are applying for asylum. There are places, there are different districts that are much, um, that have judges that are more lenient to these cases and others that are not. So it's, it really depends geographically, uh, you know, where they're actually filing the cases. So when you look at this, um, I mean, this is a really complex tapestry of policy problems and, and second order effects. Um, and when you look at it, do you say there's a, an obvious set of policy interventions that a reasonable uh, U.S. government would make that we are not making? Or do you look at this and say this is kind of an inevitable consequence of uh, a, a dramatic standard of living difference across one border and then another dramatic standard of living difference across that country's southern border? You're going to get net, you're going to get some violence. You're going to get net migration, both as people sort of, you know, produce drugs to sell across those respective borders and as people flee 
how much of this is sort of inevitable and how much of this is bad policy in, in the countries in question, including ours? So these are the exact questions that the Mexico Security Initiative is trying to, to take on here at UT. And it's, it's complicated. A lot of it is what looks like good policy then creates very bad consequences. Um, so it's... So what's an example of that? You know, I think that the, you know, going back to the one that we talked about um, quickly of uh, deporting criminals in, in jails, that might have seemed like a very good policy from the U.S. perspective of lowering violence rates uh, in major cities. And that created an enormous, enormously bad situation in El Salvador that is leading to the security crisis you have today. Or uh, a perhaps good policy that still creates bad consequences is going after the, the heads of gangs. I'm sorry, of gangs and of, of cartels. Um, because every time you take off a stable head like El Chapo, you often create splintering or vulnerabilities that other armed, organized criminal groups try to exploit. So that might be a good policy. It's probably a good thing to try to get these leaders, but it also creates perhaps more violence. When you look at the general landscape, is there one aspect of U.S. policy that you say okay, reasonable minds can disagree about X, Y, and Z, but this is insane. The first thing that, that comes to mind is something I know, Ben, we've talked about um, and something that I hope to be uh, writing about soon, which is uh, the conditions in short-term detention centers once migrants cross into the United States. And this is, you know, this is a, a not a small problem, but it isn't a, you know, as big of a problem of how do you take on you know, criminal organizations in El Salvador, but it seems like such an, an easy fix that it's, to me, it's the low-hanging fruit of, of how do you kind of, just one policy that would improve a lot of people's lives. Um, and so that is that when migrants are apprehended along the border as they're trying to cross, they're put into these short-term processing centers, um, which they call las hieleras, which means the icebox, or ice boxes, And the can, the Temperatures in these places are, they report them to be quite low, um, and they report not having adequate food or medical care. Now, the reason for this, I believe, is not that the Border Patrol are being incredibly malicious by any means. It's that these were meant to be short-term processing centers of a few hours, and so the resources that they have to offer to these migrants are made for that timeline or that time frame. But often these migrants, because there's so many, um, and they're now staying in these processing centers, which imagine it's, it's kind of like a concrete cell. They're staying there for about 72 hours, which is for small children, um, for uh, older migrants, that is a long time to be sleeping on a concrete floor or only eating kind of bread or ham, which is what they report to eat. So to me, this is, this is just where a situation evolved and the infrastructure remained the same. Um, so I imagine there could be very small changes in terms of providing just three meals a day of good food or making sure that all migrants have a small mattress, just not a real mattress, but kind of a fold-out mattress to sleep on or blankets and making sure the temperatures are adequate for small children. And that would make a huge difference uh, in the quality of life because when you talk to migrants here, they'll tell you the horrors of their home country. They'll tell you the horrors of the journey. And then they also tell you the horrors of those first few few days. And I, a lot of these people go on to win asylum cases, and it just seems like there isn't really a reason why we couldn't just ensure those, those conditions kind of meet industry standards 
for individuals who, uh, many of whom will go on to become legal U.S. residents. Steph Loiter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who's a big fan of Narcos. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.